Hi, everyone. It's Caleb, and I'm so excited for you to be joining me here today on the Learner's Corner podcast, and I have a great guest for you today. And my guest is Rich Veladas, and he is a Brooklyn-born lead pastor of New Life Fellowship, a large multiracial church with more than 75 countries represented in Queens. And uh, today I'm talking with him about his recently released book, The Deeply Formed Life. And Rich, uh, several years ago, took over uh, the church from a guy named Pete Scazzaro, who is uh, in in the Christian faith world, is really one of the leaders or the leader, depending on uh, who you talk with. Whenever it comes to emotional health and emotional health and spirituality, he actually wrote the book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality um, several years ago, and then recently has released one with leaders as well. And so we're going to talk with him about his journey to becoming the pastor, what he learned through all that, as well as the content of the book. But before we get into that, I do want to say thank you to Garrett Oler, who does the editing for this podcast and Sam Massey, who has created the music for this podcast. So thank you both for helping make this thing possible. And also, I just want to let you know if this happens to be your first time listening to the podcast, really kind of what the vision is for this podcast. You know, it's called the Learner's Corner Podcast, and it is a podcast for lifelong learners. And what we truly believe here on the podcast is that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, from anything and from everything, because everyone has something to teach us. And so that's what we want to do on this podcast. We want to create a safe place to have dangerous conversations, to have the types of conversations that maybe you're not comfortable with having having with everybody because you're not sure how they'll respond. You're not sure if they'll get mad. You're not sure if they'll see where you're coming from in this and really just trying to be a lifelong learner. And so this is the place to where we want to have those types of conversations. And so without any further wait, here is my conversation with, with Rich Velatis. Rich, I'm so excited for you to be joining me today on the Learner's Corner podcast. Thanks, Caleb. So good to uh, be with you today. Yeah. And we're going to talk mainly about your book, The Deeply Formed Life. But before we get into that, just as I was preparing for the interview, I saw that, uh, you know, Pete Scazzaro wrote the forward for your book. I mean, you uh, have taken over from him at New Life as well. And I was just curious, just as we get started, with him being such a, you know, it seems, especially in the Christian world, like the guy, whenever it comes to mental and emotional health, what, what are some of the things that you've taken away from being under Pete's leadership and just learning from him? Oh man. I mean, I know easy question, easy this question. Be, this, this should be a three hour podcast. <laughs> just for that one question. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've worked closely with Pete since 2008 and um, and so I have 12 years of, lot, I mean, being in close relationship with him. Mm-hmm. I think the thing I've learned most about Pete is, you know, I mean, obviously just from the books he's written, but just from being with him, uh, Pete is, um, besides just being very humble, uh, he, 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 his fault, he recognizes his false self 
and all the ways that his false self comes up and the way he self-protects and everything. Mm -hmm. And he's able to let it down. So whether it's his defensiveness, his openness. So I think what I've learned more most about emotional health is we have this side that we, we like to project out to the world that often uh, covers who we truly are. And the work of boundarying that self is so important. So I've seen him do that over and over again in his own life, in the conversations with him. So, uh, you know, that's one thing. Uh, you know, Pete's commitment to um, interiority, his commitment to a prayer. Uh, I mean, again, these are not just things he's writing about. I've seen him up close over mm -hmm. 12 years. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, and everything he's written in his book, I mean, he's been yeah. the most significant mentor for me in, you know, the past 12 years. Uh, so when it's Sabbath keeping, whether it's emotionally healthy relationship skills, I mean, all that I've, I, I've really benefited from being in relationship with him. Yeah. And then you went from, from work being under his leadership to now the dynamic has switched to where you're, you're the lead pastor whenever it comes yeah. to. Yeah. I love telling him what to do now. Yeah. It's, it's, it's <laughs> wonderful before. I mean, you know, I got there, I was an assistant pastor and a preaching pastor and you know, Pete was telling me what to do. And then 2013, I've been in this role now starting my eighth year. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the first couple of years, Pete was still on staff in a different position, mm -hmm. not totally involved. Uh, but it was, it, you know, it was, it was awkward. I mean, I, you know, I'm 41 now. I was 34 when I took over. And, you know, Pete's 22, 23 years older than I am. So when I became the lead pastor, being able to just say, Pete, I need you to do this now. It's like a bit awkward, you know? So, hey, Pete, could you, would you mind doing X, Y, Z? And he's like, no. And I'm like, no. <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, but it's fine. I mean, the, his role has changed so much in the past seven years. So mm -hmm. leading the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship arm of our congregation. Uh, so there's not too much things that I'm telling Pete to do these days. <laughs> yeah. What are, some, what are some things or some practices that have just helped you just just navigate just the the transition. And I'm sure that there's got to be, you know, at least a little bit of tension, maybe not even necessarily between the two of you, but people who favor, you know, Pete over you and just all, like, what are some things that have just helped you just deal with all of that? Yeah. When, when the trend, when the transition hit, we, Pete created such a great culture uh, where, which made transition seamless. You know, it mm -hmm. was a four-year process People were really getting accustomed to me. They saw what was happening when I was preaching more than he was. Every, you know, everyone saw it. So when he made the announcement, everybody was like, yeah, of course, this, we saw this coming. Uh, and, you know, in the eight years that I've been in this position, seven years I've been in this position, Pete and I probably had three conflicts, mm -hmm. three points that you know, he triggered me. He said something I didn't like, and I had to call him and say, Pete, I didn't like that. And all that there three times. That's not bad. That's actually yeah. amazing. I and mean, part of it is Pete was, he did a lot of therapy in this. So he, when he let go, he really let go. Some pastors, they let go, but they don't really let go. And especially if they're staying in the congregation that they planted or started, and it's just very difficult. A lot of pastors don't have the emotional maturity to actually let go and let the next person lead. So, but, but because he was able to let go 
and be my champion. You know, he was the one who was my cheerleader. He was the guy who was saying, you know, look, look, look at Rich and don't look at me, look at Rich now. He was really like, I must decrease, Rich must increase in this respect mm-hmm. here. And so uh, our, I don't know if our uh, transition is an anomaly or, mm-hmm. you know, how, how many other transitions are like ours, but uh, it was as good as you're going to get. And the congregation, there were some who left the church. They, they didn't want to be pastors by a 34-year-old. They, mm-hmm. they liked Pete and they wanted to go somewhere else. But for the vast majority of our congregation, everyone was just ready for new leadership and said, we'll follow Rich. So um, yeah. it, was, it was actually a lot easier than people think. Yeah. What, what are some of the things, I mean, you talked about him obviously letting go and being your cheerleader. Are there anything else or any other things that he did that like really helped you like get off to a good start or even just in, into being the, the lead pastor and everything? Yeah. Pete was he, very encouraging to me and, um, you know, reminding me of the realities of failure, the reality mm-hmm. that it's going to take me some time. The, the best gift Pete gave me was surrounding, giving me access to other mentors around the country outside. Mm. He knew, he recognized his limits as a mentor. And so he, he said, you know, I'm not going to be good at organizational leadership. That's not his thing, but here's someone who's going to help you with that. Uh, here's a, a therapist that you're going to be, uh, that I would highly recommend. So he gave me access to other relationships that were going to uh, provide for me what he couldn't provide for me. So, I mean, that's one of the best gifts mentors can give those who they're discipling, recognizing I have my limits, but let me connect you with someone who might be much more skilled than me at that. The fact that he just did that and positioned me for success with all these other, and I need a, I needed a lot of help. I had a leadership coach, a spiritual director, a therapist, some friends, and other, I had like five or six people who were surrounding me, especially the early years. And I'm so grateful for it. Most young pastors don't have that. Uh, but I had that and that really positioned me for success very early on. Yeah. Talk about, talk about how like surrounding yourself with all those different like people who could speak into different areas of your life that they were like, quote unquote, the expert. And how did that help you and set you up for success? Well, I mean, on a number of levels, these people were bringing their expertise uh, to the table. So, uh, you know, I, I forgot to add, there was a financial advisor for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was, you know, 34 years old, 35. And, Pete connected me with the financial advisor and said, here's someone that, I mean, you should be having conversations with about long-term vision of just your home and what you want to have, you know, accomplish and everything like that. But what they brought was just their expertise. Pete knew my area of expertise is in spiritual formation. It's Mm -hmm. in, you know, preaching, it's in discipling others. But then there's some areas where really there's a lot better people who can help you than I can. And uh, so they brought their, their, their niche, their area of expertise, their particular gifts, their anointing, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. um, that really positioned me for, um, you know, just success really early on. So, I mean, if anyone who's listening and trying to mentor others, one of the best gifts you can give them is the network of relationships that have helped you mm-hmm. and say, here, reach out to this person because this person will be much better for you in this area than I would. Yeah. 
And so, you, as I mentioned earlier, you've released this book called The Deeply Formed Life. And anytime that anyone releases um, any type of book or work of art or film or anything like that, I absolutely love hearing the the moment or the series of moments or the series of events that led to someone going, hey, I need to share this with the world. And so would you mind just sharing us what led you to want to write this book and then release it? Yeah, you know, in terms of just writing it, uh, I had lots of insecurities about writing. I know I'm a good preacher. I can get up and preach wherever. But um, I didn't know if I could translate what I sense God doing in me in writing. Uh, and so uh, my wife, Rosie, we're going back now maybe six years or so. She was saying to me, you know, you have a lot to offer to people in writing. And she said, you know, you write out every sermon you preach. You write two to 3,000 words every Sunday. So you're always writing. You're not just getting up there and winging it. You're writing down with specificity what you want to say. Um, you know, you should consider writing some more. So I started a blog, started a blog, and then I connected with an organization called Missio Alliance, where I started just writing articles for them. And the articles started doing really well and kind of like a confirmation of, yeah, I, I think I do have something to offer, but I still, I still had lots of insecurities about my writing. Part of it was, I mean, I'm in a church where my predecessor is a best-selling author his books sell like hotcakes. I'm wondering, oh man, that's, that's under, I didn't feel uh, insecurity when it came to preaching. Uh, I knew I had a lot to offer, uh, but I had to fight through my security. So experimenting with just writing articles or blogs or posts on Facebook really gave me the courage to do that. But the, the writing really came, people had to pull it out of me rather than me just going, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. I would speak at a conference. I remember speaking at a conference in Colorado Springs and someone came up to me and thought, you know, this sounds like this could be a really great book. Yeah. And I thought, oh yeah, maybe. All right, we'll see. So slowly but surely it started coming out. But after the, after the outside confirmation that I started getting from people, um, I started getting a burden for writing the book for my congregation. Uh, and much like Eugene Peterson wrote, the message, you know, the translation of the mm -hmm. Bible, the message, uh, the paraphrase of it. He, it started with a Bible study used, you know, through the book of Galatians and his congregation, he realized they needed more accessible contemporary language to help them understand what Paul was saying. So he paraphrased it. And one thing that led to the next and, you know, he, but, but the message came out of pa initially pastoral concern. And for me, it came out of pastoral concern because the values I write about are the values of our congregation. Now I, I call them in the book, contemplative rhythms, racial reconciliation, interior examination, sexual wholeness, and missional presence in our, in our church, they go by the five M. So it's monastic, multiracial, emotional health, marriage to Christ and missional. And so I wanted to, first of all, provide a resource for our congregation to dive deeper into the values that make up, who we are as a congregation. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, you know what? I think beyond just our church, I really believe in these values and the, and the collection of the values that this could be an ambitious reframing of what spiritual formation is for the particular cultural moment we're in. And we need to be thinking formatively and formationally around race, around sexuality, around justice, uh, and the fact that I'm writing about formation from New York city, I'm not writing from like the mountains or a monastery. I'm writing with 
people, you know, dr- you know, driving 80 miles an hour on the boulevard and people running into the subway. I'm in the city that never sleeps. And so to write it from this context, I think was pretty important. But it's really an ambitious reframing of what I think spiritual formation can be in this uh, day and age. And, you know, the, from what I understand, the premise of the book is kind of, we want to go deep whenever it comes to our faith and not stay on, on the superficial level, but we tend to drift towards the superficial. And so, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Were you going to say something? Yeah. You know, and and the, the ways that we uh, work out our faith Mm -hmm. um, often comes from a superficial level. And what, by that, I mean, it's not, thoughtful. It's not contemplative. It's um, lots of dichotomies that are created. Uh, And so, you know, I like to think of it, I have been influenced by charismatic evangelical progressive traditions. And in each tradition, they have gifts and they have limits. You know, in the Pentecostal tradition, it's about right experience. And the evangelical tradition is often about right theology or right thinking. In the progressive tradition, it's often about right action. And so right experience, right thinking, right action, but it often comes at the expense of uh, the interior work uh, that needs to take place, the contemplative work that needs to take place. So I'm I'm, I'm all for justice in the world and uh, racial justice, you know, economic justice across the board, but there's a way of living that's not sustainable and a way that's living that's not really self-critical or contemplative. What I'm trying to do here is say, to engage these issues, yes, we need right action. Yes, we need right experiences. Yes, we need right theology. At the same time, we need a kind of uh, a, a deeply formed life, a life of interiority mm-hmm. uh, that enables us to address these issues um, with greater depth uh, than we often tend to address them. So that's really the premise of, of the book. Yeah. What do you think draws us or why do you think we drift towards the the superficial instead of the deep? Yeah, because the the deep is the way of the cross. Uh, I mean, you you know, we tend to, uh, you know, use God to run from ourselves, use God to run from God, to to look within, whether we're talking about race, sexuality, uh, you know, uh, prayer, you know, our own emotional health, it's often very difficult. And we feel like we're going to be caught. Um, Andreas Ebert, who he, he wrote a, a, a book on the Enneagram with Richard Rohr, and he talks about many people have a hard time, uh, you know, going down the path of self-examination because we think we're going to be, you know, trapped in our own abysses. Mm-hmm. And so we think if I, if I go there, I, I don't know if I'm going to come out. Uh, and so the fear, the pace of life that we live, often the the compartmentalization of our own selves. These are some of the reasons why we don't do it, because it's easy not to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but to follow Jesus means opening ourselves up to every aspect, you know, opening G, open ourselves up to Christ. And that means every facet of our lives, not just our behavior and our external acts, but also the interior movements that shape and form the ways we live in the world. Mm-hmm. What do you think makes us, like going back to that quote that you were talking about, what do you think makes us believe that if we enter the darkness or the abyss in ourselves, that we won't, that we won't make it out, that we'll be consumed by it? You know, I, I think at the core of it, it, it is fear, fear of the unknown. It's 
It's why people who know they should go to the doctor to get their annual checkup or there's something on their body that they want to check up, but they don't want to because of fear. What's the news I'm going to hear? So we rather live in a kind of obliviousness, um, you know, closing our eyes to it, thinking it'll go away. But if I got the news, you know, uh, some five years ago, I had lymphatic tuberculosis and I had uh, my lymph nodes under my neck and my, uh, and, you know, my, under my arms. I mean, they were, they, they were protruding. And I, at first I thought it was maybe the flu or whatever, like it had all kinds of different symptoms. And um, there came a time when I saw, you know, one of our congregants is a doctor and she said to me, you know, Rich, you, you might want to consider getting a biopsy. And just hearing that word, you know, I was, you know, you know, 30, 34 years old hearing that word. I, I, I was, I just went down such a path of anxiety and I thought, I don't want to do that. No, and I, I, I'd rather than just stay home and not get the bad news and figure it out. And, and you see how self-defeating that is because sooner or later these things catch up. And so I remember going, you know, I have to look within and they have to look within my skin here to find out what's going on. And they found out, you know, it's, it's not cancerous. It's, it's, it's tuberculosis. How in the world I got tuberculosis? In fact, I have no clue to this day. Um, but fear, fear of the unknown. What am I going to discover? Uh, and, um, you know, there's a good German proverb, you know, fear makes the wolf bigger, bigger than he is, you know? And uh, for, for many of us, I think we go down that road. What am I going to experience? What am I going to hear? But in that quote by Andreas Ebert, he says, as Christians, we have nothing to fear because Christ has been through every, the deepest abyss that anyone can experience. And he goes with us when we dare to confront ourselves in, you know, in, in sincere self-confrontation, he goes with us. And so for all the fear that we have of looking within, uh, when we go with Christ, you know, we have the strength because if there's anyone who knows how to get out of a hole, it's Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And he goes with us and can uh, help us arise out of the, the deepest existential despair we might find ourselves in. Yeah. I, I was just talking with a friend last night and uh, she, she, speaking of the Enneagram, she has, is just starting to get into the Enneagram. And uh, I was just asking her, hey, have you, have you read it yet? And she said, I haven't. I feel like there's so much stuff that's going on in my world right now, both personally and professionally, that I don't feel like I have the time to even do this deep introspective yeah. work. And I feel like that's where a lot of us are right now. Yeah. I mean, do you just have, do you have any thoughts on that? Like, is it better to like focus on that stuff or? Yeah. yeah, it is a very challenging reality. Just the pace that we live, the demands on our lives. And so on one level, I absolutely get it. And uh, the, the last thing I, I want to do when I talk about these things is create the, uh, to romanticize this, to create an unhealthy ideal that no one can achieve. Uh, but the, what I would say to those who say, you know, life is just so busy, um, you know, sooner, just know that sooner or later, it's going to catch up with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether, whether, you know, I read something from, and I'm leading uh, 15 of our congregants through a, a school of formation where we're going through these five values over a nine month period. And uh, one person had a journal entry and they sent it and essentially said, you know, um, it, it took sickness 
to get me to a point where I had to stop working. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, I, I think, you know, they were just thanking God that, you know, they could stop working, but it took sickness to do it. Um, it shouldn't take sickness. Now, sadly it does, mm -hmm. but it shouldn't take sickness to get us on our backs and, and not working. And the invitation is again, looking within it, it, it is an act of cruciformity. It's, it's, I'm picking up my cross. I'm following Jesus. Uh, I'm, I'm taking stock. I'm taking inventory of what's happening inside of me and asking Jesus to heal that. Uh, and so I, I think the interior life is not like some, uh, addendum to the Christian life and to discipleship that it is core to it. The same way that race is not like uh, whoever can get around to wrestling through matters of race. If you can do that, go ahead. Now, that's not the vision of the gospel. It is to, to address matters of race is core to Christian discipleship, not for like specialists or for, or for people who have the time to do it. Uh, and the same for the interior life. This is part of what it means to follow Jesus and sooner or later, it will catch up to you. So, um, you know, try to beat it to the punch. Yeah. One, one of the thoughts that, uh, that I had just as I was going through the book is I had the thought of just the Pharisees and how they, they thought they were going deep, but mm -hmm. really they were superficial whenever mm -hmm. it comes to their life because there wasn't that interior transformation that you're talking about. How, what can we be on the lookout for that can help us determine and not get deceived into believing, hey, we're going deep when actually we're very superficial. That's a great question, and I, I think it, I think there's a rather simple answer to it. Um, I think the more we intentionally spend time with God in prayer and in self-examination, um, we open ourselves up to greater revelation in terms of who we are. You know, this is Isaiah 6. This is Isaiah in the temple, and he encounters God, and his first response is, woe is me. Uh, this is Peter on the boat with Jesus, where, you know, they, they, they have this amazing catch of fish, and Peter says, depart from me. Uh, you, know, be, you know, you're too holy for me. Uh, any genuine encounter with God uh, is to lead to an encounter with ourselves, and so the ways that we move beyond just the superficial ways of behavior modification or legalism is to truly open ourselves up to God in a way that invites God to help us to confront ourselves. And I think that's what ultimately will happen. There's a way of praying. And again, there's a way of being in relationship with God that ha helps us avoid God, <laughs> And there's, a, and, and there's a way of being in relationship with God that helps us avoid ourselves. But any true relationship with God encounters us with ourselves as well. So for those uh, who want to go deep, this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is, this is Jesus saying, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. You've heard it said, don't kill. But that's just kind of the, and don't do that. That's the external stuff. But there's deeper stuff. When you say raka, when you get angry with a brother or sister, there's something deeper happening beneath the surface that God wants to access. And I think that, that that's accessed as we are in, uh, in prayer and not just a kind of rote style of prayer, but Lord, uh, just don't show me your glory. Show, show me me. Show me the things that you want to heal. And when that happens, I think we live from a greater place of, number one, humility. 
and a place of brokenness because I recognize I'm just as bad as anyone else. You know, there's a desert father story uh, of um, a guy who comes up to, I believe it was uh, Abba Moses. And he comes up to this, uh, you know, desert, uh, this head of the uh, monastery or this of, of the, of the desert. And he goes, you know, uh, uh, Abba Moses, and I'm probably getting the name wrong, but he said, your vessel, your, your life is full of poison. And the guy says, wow, uh, you're absolutely right, brother. And uh, what would you say if you saw what's inside of me? You say that when you can only see the external. Imagine what you would say if you saw what was inside my soul. And I thought, that's a guy who's broken. That's a guy who's humble. That's the guy who knows. He's, he doesn't have it all together. So he's going to live with mercy and compassion in the world. And I think that's the invitation for us. Yeah. What, what have you learned helps you from not getting stuck are paralyzed by your brokenness because I think there is a tendency like yeah. that we can see ourselves and it's and it feels so ugly or it feels so repulsive that it's like you almost get you almost get stuck in self-centeredness of like yeah. of that. I'm accustomed to that. And so I I say this out of my own experience and struggle here. Whenever um I often see the level of my brokenness whenever there's disproportionate reactions to things or anxiety that overwhelms me, uh, and whether that anxiety is manifesting in fear of what others think, or a need to control, or anger that's manifesting, it's often anxiety that's what's at the root of these things. And uh, one of the ways that uh, I've been able to navigate these moments when brokenness surfaces is by uh, uh, truly submitting my present story and previous stories to God. Uh, I actually do it in a, in a five-step process that I actually outline in the book when I talk about yeah. interior examination. Whenever there's disproportionate reactions in me or anxiety that's flooding my soul, I ask myself five questions. And I started doing this a couple of years ago, and it's become so intuitive that I don't, so it just comes out of me here. So, you know, it's often these questions, what, what happened? Uh, what am I feeling? What's the story I'm telling myself? What's the gospel say? And what's the counter instinctual act that's required? And inevitably, in a given year, in a given month, in a given week, I'm going to be criticized by someone and um, I'm going to have a reaction and my brokenness is going to surface. And in those moments, I can either turn in on myself and just wallow in my own sense of inadequacy or I could submit my story to Jesus. And so what it looks like is very simply this, you know, there's someone who, uh, uh, a well-known Christian leader, she sent me a message on Instagram critiquing me on something that I had posted. And this is a woman who I really respect. And when I read the critique and it was, there was no malicious tone to it. It was just honest and it was done in love. And I, but when I first read it, I'm thinking, who, now who does she think she is sending me this? You know, and I'm I'm angry, I'm defensive, I'm closed up. I I turn my phone off. But because I had been working through these questions, I was able to process it in a way that didn't keep me stuck. Uh, and so, you know, I very simply processed it this way. You know, what happened? A well-known. Christian leader I respect criticized me or critiqued me. You know, mm -hmm. uh, what am I feeling? Deep, deep shame. Uh, what's the story I'm telling myself? I'll never be a competent leader. I'll always make dumb mistakes. 
what's the gospel say? God uses broken, incompetent leaders. <laughs> you know what? What's the counter instinctual act I need to give myself to? In my case, it was externalizing that. I needed to process with someone as opposed to just staying within. So I had to call my wife over and say, honey, I've been experiencing a lot of shame today. Um, I'm feeling really down because of this interaction I had with someone. Can I just share that with you a bit? And in externalizing it, I found myself not just experiencing emotional catharsis. I experienced the healing of God because I allowed someone into a space that I typically tend to uh, address by myself. Uh, so that's one of the ways that when brokenness comes to the surface, in particular with anxiety, uh, how I try to navigate through that. Yeah, that's great. And I want to uh, I want to read a quote to you, and it and it's uh, how you you expound upon uh, the deep life, and then I would just love uh, just your take on it yeah. as well. And uh, you say a deeply formed life is a life marked by integration, intersection, intertwining and interweaving, holding together multiple layers of spiritual formation. Would you mind just expounding on that idea even more? Because it just really resonated with me whenever I was reading through it. Yeah. One of the challenges that we have when we think about discipleship formation following Jesus is the challenge of formational compartmentalization. Hmm. And by formational compartmentalization, I mean this. Uh, We don't see... um, the entirety of discipleship as something that belongs to me. And so, you know, race is not my thing. So you guys can handle that. I'll just be over here in the corner praying or, you know, justice, you know, that's kind of your thing, but I'll be reading my Bible or, you know, I really like small groups, but to talk about sexuality, you know, not so much Uh, for me, I'm saying uh, in order to live deeply formed, we do need this level of interweaving and integration and intersection. Uh, And when you look at the life of Jesus and the readings of the New Testament, uh, we see uh, the gospel covers a myriad of formational things for us. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and so uh, for me, it's about not privatizing our faith and not uh, unnecessarily segmenting our faith. And I'm not saying we're all going to be now scholars on matters of race and and experts in matters of sexuality. But as a follower of Jesus, I must be able to submit some of these areas uh, to Christ for my own formation. Now, those areas that I talk about and write about, they are not the only thing to uh, Christian formation. Mm -hmm. Uh, But from where I sit as a pastor from Queens and seeing the work that God has done in countless people in our congregation and around the world, I see these as five incredibly urgent areas. Uh, But it's about that phrase for me, it's about resisting formational compartmentalization Mm -hmm. that uh, we want to submit all of our lives to God. Yeah. Well, what would you say to the person? I mean, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but the person who uh, just feels like their, their pace of life does not enable them to go deeply in those things, they know that it's important, and and just as you were saying, there's there's other areas as well. And it, what advice would you give that person to even just starting this process of becoming yeah. more deeply formed? You know, when it comes to the pace of life that we live, what often uh, gets focused on is what are the external 
changes that I need to make to slow down my life. All right, so I'm going to get up a little earlier today, or I'm going to do some chores to make space later. And all those things are important. What often goes missing is taking the time to identify what are the deep messages within me that cause me to live at this pace. So for example, when we talk about Sabbath keeping, uh, to keep a Sabbath, you know, and a Sabbath is a 24-hour period without any have-tos or shoulds, which should re- result over time in deep rest and renewal. Um, to keep Sabbath is not simply about, uh, all right, I'm going to uh, create this 24-hour period, and in so doing, I'm going to rest, and then I'm going to be more efficient or more productive, which is really a byproduct of Sabbath. You are more productive. You are more efficient. But if we're looking at it from that perspective, we've missed the goal of Sabbath because the Sabbath, the goal of the Sabbath is not to make us more productive. The goal of Sabbath is to resist the idols of productivity. Mm. Uh, It's not to be more efficient, it's to resist the stronghold and the idols of efficiency. And if we start at that point there, I am more than what I produce. I am more than what I achieve. I am more than what I get done. And I, and I need boundaries to help me live into that reality. Uh, it's at that point now where I think there can be long-term sustainability with some of these practices because it's coming from a different place now, not just my fatigue of my body. My soul is fatigued. And the reason mm-hmm. my soul is fatigued is not because my body is tired. My soul is fatigued because I've been believing messages that are actually damaging to my life with God, my life with my neighbor, and my life with myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's ironic or not, but just over the past week or two, like that, that has come to be the realization in myself because I was just thinking like, you know what? I'm getting ready to go on vacation here soon. It'll all be okay after that. And then real, like just realizing it must've been just the Holy spirit. It was like, it's not going to change unless you change. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And it's a battle. And it's, it's again, the last thing I, when I write this book, I don't want to say like, and just take a couple of Sabbaths and the, the idol yeah. of people will just be exercised out of your soul. And it, this is something that it's an ongoing battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think that um, uh, the the stronghold, the power that it has over our lives can be lessened as we continue to uh, commit ourselves to some of these practices over time. Yeah. And and just as uh, we get into some of the, the values that you talk about, I was just curious, has there been one that maybe has the most resistance that you've seen towards it or does it, does it just differ? Uh, in people or with me? Uh, either, uh, with people, you know, because we live in such a racialized society, mm-hmm. um, uh, there's been, uh, you know, whenever you talk about race, there's going to be resistance. And, you know, when I talk about race, I talk about it on various levels. Minimally, I talk about it individually, interpersonally and mm-hmm. institutionally. And whenever you get to the institutional element of it, there's a lot of resistance uh, because um, folks, you know, um, they don't want to be blamed for systems. They're, I didn't have nothing to do with that, you know. So, so I think uh, 
much of the resistance that I receive personally comes from folks who have a hard time seeing the systemic and institutional elements of sin in the world as it's manifested in matters of race. So uh, that's something that I've had to pastor people through, sometimes effectively, sometimes not so much. Uh, But that's probably the biggest area of resistance, especially in the particular climate that we're in, Mm -hmm. in this country. Um, So I'd say that's probably the one that most resistance. And in in me, uh, you know, for me, it is the interior examination values that find most resistance in me. Uh, not because I don't want to do them, but it's just, um, I, I, by this time, I wish I was done with these things. You know, I've been working, I've been working on my own soul for a while. And I'm like, I still have so much to go. I'm tired of this, but, um, but I, I, you know, I remind myself and others remind me that this is a lifelong work that I need to give myself to. This is taking up my cross. So, those are a couple of the things, areas that I think I have experienced most resistance in. Yeah. Well, whenever, whenever it comes to, to really, to, to, I would say to pastoring people and to leading people to the, the realization of, you know, institutional racism, what are, what are some things that you've learned that have been, that have, that have helped you communicate that idea? Because it, for some people, it is a really hard idea to understand. Yeah. Um, depending who I talk to, uh, it's often the case where we have to look at some scriptures in particular mm-hmm. in the Hebrew, with the Hebrew prophets. Uh, and so whether it's with Amos, whether it's with Isaiah, um, Jeremiah, uh, it's, you know, you know, woe to you who decree unjust laws. You know, it's, it's Isaiah, you know, Isaiah 58. This is the fasting that I want. And so uh, I've often had to say, hey, uh, the Old Testament, you know, Jesus is a prophet in line with Old Testament tradition. Uh, And obviously he's more than a prophet, but he's a prophet in line with that tradition. And that tradition was not just about prophetic ministry was not about telling the future per se. It's about really speaking the truth in the present. And um, and so for me, when I to help people along those lines, looking at those passages uh, and saying how how a, a, a theology of sin, uh, you know, I have a high theology of sin in the sense that, um, you know, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr wrote this book, Moral Man and Moral Society. And he talked about, you know, left alone. And I believe it was him who said he should have retitled it Immoral Man and even more Immoral Society, something along those lines, because... Yeah. Uh, in ourselves, we are broken. We have sin in our lives. And then when we get together, uh, we have a way of magnifying and multiplying sin. You know, just think about in the high school. You know, I always would see people in high school or junior high school, when they're alone, they're just good people. And then they get with their, their, their crew, you know, and then something comes out of them. I'm like, when you were alone, you you said hi to me. Now you're with people. You want to beat me up. What's, what is going on here? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the nature of sin. And so systemic sin happens in that way where um, if left unchecked, uh, it starts pervading now uh, structures and all that. So that's been one of the ways. When I, when I, when I talk to people about race, I often give uh, six different layers uh, to talk about it. And again, for some people, 
they are fixed in their ways. They, they just see sin as something that's individual and I shouldn't be blamed for something that happened that I had nothing to do with. Uh, for others, they, they see the, um, the importance of these layers. And so when I talk about race, I talk about it from a theological, historical, sociological, ecclesiological, political, and formational uh, layers. And I think we need all those layers to do justice to a issue that is multifaceted and multilayered. And so, but beginning with some of the teachings and scriptures about the ways that sin is manifested in the powers that be to provide advantages for some and disadvantages to others, for me, has been an important start. Yeah. What are, what are some things that you've learned just whenever it comes to helping lead other people more towards the, the deep life that you write about? What are some things that you've learned that help you lead other people into that life? What I've learned is that we need to cultivate a firsthand spirituality with God. And uh, it's, it's often the case that lots of folks live a secondhand spirituality. They live off the spirituality of other people. Um, whether that's the pastor, whether that's the worship leader, whether that's the podcast, whether that's the what YouTube, whatever. And uh, we're so accustomed to living off of what other people are learning as opposed to cultivating my own firsthand spirituality with God. And so, um, you know, when I'm thinking about leading others, uh, you know, I, I make that very clear. Uh what is the unique story that you're in? What are the unique experiences you've had? And what is God saying to you and through you in that? And so part of that is just making space for our own uh, uh, firsthand life with God. And uh, moreover, when I lead others, I'm, I'm trying to help them grow into uh, you know, compassionate self-confrontation. Mm. and um, it's often the case that people, the ways that we confront our own selves is through a, uh, a lens of condemnation and judgment. But what would it mean to confront ourselves honestly, but with uh, self-compassion? And I have found that when people are led in that way, they're able to be honest more about their own failings and shortcomings and sin and be a greater presence of healing because it's coming really from a, a deeper place. So those are just a couple of things that come to mind at this moment when I lead others, what I'm trying to do. Yeah. What helps you whenever you, you come to the realization yourself that, that you've drifted towards the shallow and that you've, uh, for, for lack of, uh, I can't think of another word, but you've, you failed in living the deep life. What, what helps you whenever you re- make that realization? You know, what's, what's helpful is to have uh, in my week-to-week uh, structures in place uh, to help me do inventory. And whether those structures are just with my spouse, my wife, Rosie, who um, she can often see when I'm not living the deeply formed life. She's the first one to see it and <laughs> to point it out. She's like, you got to go to the room and pray right now. You need to pray. Cause you're not, you're not doing so well today. Uh, so, uh, there's Rosie, you know, I, uh, I meet with, um, three other pastor friends monthly. Um, we, we've had a little break over the last couple of months, but, um, we usually meet once a month where we're just talking about our souls Mm -hmm. talking about what's going on. Um, having seasonal therapy 
is really important for me as well. So there are, um, you know, structures in place and relationships in place that uh, ask the questions that I need to reflect on. Uh, and so it, I, I think that has really helped me to uh, be honest with myself and honest with others. And truthfully, I mean, I wrote the Deeply Formed Life. Uh, and the reason, the primary reason I wrote it is because I need to grow in these areas. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I know how shallowly shaped I can be. And so, you know, when people write books, you know, it, it's, it's usually the case they're writing it first for themselves. When I'm preaching a sermon, I'm like, this is me all over it here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I wrote this primarily for myself because these are areas that I know Christ was inviting me to go deeper in and then, you know, offering it to others. But um, having those relationships have been so important to uh, helping me uh, identify when I'm moving out of, when I'm moving into the shallow realm of just, and the shallow realm for me is, mm-hmm. uh, I'll, I'll define it for you. It's, it is a pace of life that's not sustainable, uh, which crowds out prayer and reflection and contemplation. It's, um, it's, it's anxiety that I don't pay attention to uh, because of fear. For me, that's the shallow life when I'm not taking the time to open up the hood of my soul to look within, or I have not slowed down my, my pace. And so whether it's outer pace or inner space, um, the, uh, it's very easy for me to live a, a shallow life, but some of those relationships have really helped me to uh, move away from that when it comes. Yeah. What, what have you learned through your, your journey towards the deeper life that you, that you didn't know whenever you didn't know about the deeper life? Um, I think what I've discovered over and over again in new and fresh ways is uh, the depth of God's love. Hmm. Uh, And so on one level, you know, I knew it, but I didn't know it. And I think I'm going to spend the rest of my life um, recognizing how much I did not know the love of God. And, um, you know, when I was, when I was 20, um, I, when I first tasted the love of God in this way, you know, I was like, wow, this is, this is profound. And then, you know, 25, a new experience. Wow. This is profound. I didn't know the love of God like this before. And 30, I'm 41 now. It's like, wow. You know, I, I just know that for the rest of my life, I will be diving deeper into understanding the love of God. That's probably the thing that has the thing that I didn't know yeah. that I know yeah. now. And then in a little while I realized I didn't know it. <laughs> yes. That's, that's usually how it goes. <laughs> um, how, how was that greater awareness of God's love just impacted your life on a day-to-day basis? You know, when I think about the love of God, I go to Matthew three and Jesus before he uh, starts his ministry is baptized and, the voice comes out from heaven. This is my son, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I return to that verse over and over again. Mm-hmm. And I, I love, first of all, that that word of affirmation from the father did not come after the resurrection. You know, if there was a time for that affirmation, it was at, like after the resurrection. He raised, he's risen from the dead and there's a booming voice that says, that's my son. 
my beloved in whom I'm well pleased. It'd be like, yeah, that's a good time to actually uh, hear that affirmation. But when that word of affirmation comes from the father, it's before Jesus opens blind eyes, before he heals the sick, raises the dead, before he multiplies bread and fish. He hasn't done anything. And the father's saying, you are my, look how much I love you. That has impacted me on a regular basis because I have a, uh, a problem in my life where I have the gravitational pull of my life is to base my value on how successful I am and um, what am I accomplishing. So, you know, my book came out a month ago and there are great moments when I'm feeling uh, free, like fr from like the need to be someone. And like, wow, I'm, I'm glad I wrote the book and I'm glad it's helping people. And I feel really free. I'm just letting it go. And then, you know, three hours later, I'm thinking, uh, wow, I wonder how the book is doing. I wonder if anyone's buying it. I wonder who's talking about it right now. And it's the gravitational pull to base my value on what people think about me or how successful the things I give myself to are. Coming back to that Matthew 3 verse, that's what has regularly anchored me, um, especially when I'm looking for validation from places that really can't satisfy the depths of my soul, what my soul really needs. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that you do to remind yourself of that? I rarely journal. Um, yeah. so I, 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 you know, I have my, this is my, what, I'm sitting in my prayer chair here, I have my journal right here where... Um, you know, whether mornings or evenings, I'm taking time to, to listen to Jesus. Um, you know, the, the most important spiritual formation practice that I give myself to, like someone asked me, you know, one time, if you were on this kind of like a stranded on a desert island and you had one spiritual practice to take with you, what do you take? And I'm and I said, very simple. It is silent centering prayer for me hmm. because in silent centering prayer, I sit here, I open my hands, I submit my will to God, I have the name of Jesus on my lips, and when my mind gets distracted, I come back to Jesus, offering my presence to him. And um, I have found that when I set my timer for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and I just sit here, breathing in and out, having the name of Jesus on my lips, receiving the love of God. Beyond just the, the rewiring of my brain that's happening, something's happening that I can't even explain that, you know, mindfulness experts and all that know about. I know my soul is being countered by the living God and the love of God. And because I'm behold, you know, we become what we behold. And because I've been beholding God in those moments, I feel like my, I'm, I'm becoming more loving. I'm becoming more like God. So uh, that simple prayer practice is what has rooted me in the love of God, probably more than anything else. Wow. Well, Rich, I know that people are going to want to, you know, continue to learn from you and get your book, The Deeply Formed Life. Where's the best place for people to go to keep up with you and get the book? Yeah, if they went to richvelotis.com, um, I'm constantly trying to add things to the website. Uh, in a few weeks, we'll be putting out a a discussion guide. Lots, lots of churches have been asking, hey, I want to take a small group, have a discussion with some friends about the book. So we're creating that right now. 
Um, folks can go on richlotus.com. They can sign up for emails as well. And I, I send out content from time to time. And uh, on social media, just you know, on Twitter and on Instagram, that's where I'm usually experimenting with ideas and thoughts and sharing about uh, the painful reality of being a Mets fan or a, a Jets fan or a Knicks fan. So you'll see some of my own lamenting on social media with that. And then some, I, some thoughts about God too. So those are two places you can go. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you just for, for doing the work and for sharing it with us today. Thanks, Caleb. Uh, thanks for uh, having me. This has been a good time. Well, Rich, thank you again so much for being on the Learner's Corner podcast today. And if uh, you're listening to the podcast and you're not a subscriber, I would suggest that you go ahead and just subscribe or follow the podcast. If you're on Spotify, leave a rating, write a review. And also, um, I would love to hear from you. And the best way to reach out to me, the best way to talk with me is through Instagram. And so go ahead and head over to Caleb J. Mason. That is my handle on Instagram. I would love to hear from you. I'm also on Twitter, which is just at Caleb Mason. I'm more active on Instagram or I'm I'm on Instagram more than Twitter. And so if you want to catch me, that's probably the best place to go, but would love to hear from you. Would love to hear some of the things that you would love us to talk about on the Learner's Corner podcast that you would love to learn from as well. And maybe we can make those things happen as well. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Learner's Corner podcast. My name is Caleb Mason, and until next time, keep learning and keep growing.